Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Before we get started and before you hear that music that you probably know real well by now, I just want to say a couple of things. First off, I was looking at the analytics, and yes, I do pay attention to who actually listens to this show, and the numbers are going up. I'm looking month by month by month. You know, we started this thing back in May of this year, and it's been, what is that? I can't do simple math, but sounds about five months to me, and every month we've gone up in the number of people that have listened to this podcast. So that's really great. I take that as uh, you guys enjoying what I'm talking about, sometimes what I'm talking with others about, and... And if you are enjoying this, remember, don't forget to share this with others, especially, especially, especially this episode. This is my favorite episode that I've ever done with This Week in Salsa. And I've probably said that about other episodes in the past, but I can tell you that this is my favorite. Uh, this is with a guy named Jonathan Goldman. Um, he is someone who knows about a lot of this salsa history, uh, Latin music history. That's what he does for his profession. He works in the literature in the English department at the New York Institute of Technology. Um, I actually only found out after this interview that he's also the trumpet player in a Latin boogaloo band in New York City. So this guy really knows his stuff. And as an extra added bonus, uh, the, the band is called Spanglish Flies. Uh, Spanglish Fly, I should say, no flies. Although there are technically, if each one of them is a fly, there are like five or six in the band. So it would be flies. Either way, the music is great. I've been listening to it on nonstop, essentially, for the past week since I found out about them. But I put one of their songs, Brooklyn Boogaloo, in the very end of this. So instead of the usual sign-out music, you will hear that. So enjoy that and enjoy the episode. Whip. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. So you know how to walk. You know how to dance. You ever dance with the devil in the Welcome to another episode of This Week in Salsa. Today we have a special guest on the show, Jonathan Goldman. Uh, now, Jonathan wrote a very interesting article called Fania at 50. I uh, read this last week, really enjoyed it. I noticed that it made the rounds around a lot of my salsa dancing friends. And so I wanted to bring him on the show. He was courteous enough to join us here and just talk a little bit about the article and expand upon some of the thoughts there. And this is something that I think can benefit anyone who dances any kind of Latin dancing. There are a lot of interesting insights in this article, which I will link to in the show notes. But that being said, Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Robert. Absolutely. Now, to let the audience just know a little bit more about you, uh, what's your background and how did you come across this story? Have you been writing about Latin dancing uh, in the past or is this uh, a new aspect uh, for you? Well, actually, I... I have been writing about 20th century literature and culture in the United States and elsewhere for a long time um, and playing music uh, as a trumpet player um, and leading my own band for a while too and the two have never come together before. So um, it, was, it was just after, after years of having these two versions of my life completely separate from one another, from one another I finally decided to take the occasion of Fania's 50th anniversary to um, write a little about uh, things I had uh, researched and thoughts I had had about this particular moment in Latin music, the late 1960s and early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting time period, and I love that you wrote about this. 
And why don't you tell us to set the stage in this 1960s, 1970s, very transitory point in Latin music. Just tell us about where Fania in general like is as a, as a business at this point in time. And I know they were becoming more powerful as well, but I guess what was Fania known for in the 60s versus the 70s? And just tell us about that transition that was happening. Right. Well, Fania came along in the 1960s and um, was uh, an, an independent Latin label at a time when uh, most labels were independent, but um, there wasn't really a um, there wasn't anything like this. Nothing, nothing like Fania had come before. A, a music label specifically devoted to Latin music that could achieve crossover appeal and that could become this economic giant. Um, and the way it, it initially did it was, um, I mean, they, they, were, they, they were very driven and they had fantastic taste. So uh, the early Johnny Pacheco records are amazing. And um, they, they just, they knew what they were doing musically. Um, but their first really bold step was to, pers- uh, was to put out these Boogaloo singles and to uh, sign someone like Joe Batan, who was, um, as everybody knows, not a Latin musician. Uh, he, I mean, he was not of Latino background, um, but he was merging Latin music with uh, the other sounds that everybody would hear in El Barrio, the other sounds you would hear in Spanish Harlem when you look to one side and your neighbors are listening to James Brown and uh, James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Motown, and you look to the other side and everybody's listening to doo-wop and street corner doo-wop music, and suddenly, and, and then your parents upstairs are listening to uh, Son Cubano and Mambos, so this all comes together in this place uh, in Spanish Harlem and Fania tapped into that. Um, they tapped into that moment and um, they, it, it enabled them to get on what was called American radio, um, which is distinguished, which was distinguished from what was called Spanish radio. Obviously it wasn't Spanish um, <laughs> in any way of being from Spain or anything like that. That's just what it was called music where the DJs were in Spanish and all the music was Latin uh, radio stations were the sorry radio stations where the DJs were speaking Spanish and all the music was Latin music. Uh, it was that they were they were on those stations, but they also managed to get on the English speaking stations that had wider audiences and uh, bigger broadcast signals too. Hmm. Now, with that, is that driven by the fact that a lot of these boogaloo's were in English? Or was it driven by something else? Was it driven by the actual beats? Uh, why did that crossover happen? Well, it was partly that um, it was partly that the that the sorry it was partly that the lyrics were in English, and it was partly that the um, music was uh, to be blunt, the music was simpler in lots of ways than more traditional forms of Latin music were, and simpler than salsa would become, musically speaking. There's, um, that said, that, that simplicity has an amazing appeal uh, across the board to people. So when you, I, I know you're, a lot of your listeners are dancers. One thing about Boogaloo is that it's not designed necessarily for partner dancing, and it's not designed necessarily 
for people who have been trained or taken lessons or learned, some, picked up by osmosis, the dances at all. Mm -hmm. Boogaloo was more about, hey, whether you know Latin music or not, whether you've ever heard this stuff, this is a groove that will get you up off of your feet and you can just go out on the dance floor and shake your thing. And that was a very 1960s sort of thing going on, that sort of individualism, that, um, that shedding the strictures of the past in a way. And I, so Fania, Boogaloo, the dances all came together in this, um, in this very particular way in the 1960s that was very appropriate for that moment. But um, as I write about in the article became less important to people when once the 1970s hit. And I don't mean that it's a clean break, you know, December 31st, 1969 to January 1st, 1970. I just mean that we tend to think of history in these periods, and this one maps very nicely onto the transition from Boogaloo to Salsa. Mm -hmm. Now, th there is some debate over this transition that uh, and I know that Izzy makes this claim that it was murdered essentially. So Boogaloo was murdered by Fania so that Salsa could take that place. And there are others that say, well, no, it's uh, they're going to follow the money. So they felt that there was more potential in Salsa being the the flagship for Fania as opposed to Boogaloo. Where where do you I mean where do you as an author come across with the results that you've seen from talking to Izzy and talking to other people? How do you think that actually went down? Well, there's the conspiracy, I, I, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but that's essentially what it is. And I don't mean to say that anybody's, you know, a tin hat wearing conspiracy theorist. I just mean that there is a, there is a, an, an agreement amongst a lot of reputable people, including Izzy Sanabra, who I cite, um, that in fact, uh, there was a concerted effort by the industry, Fania included, to kill off Boogaloo in favor of Salsa. And then there is an agreement among a lot of other very reputable people, including Harvey Averne and Alex Masucci, who I quote in the article, that that's crazy, that we would never, no one would have ever done that if they thought they could still make money. My position is, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get involved in this discussion <laughs> in between these people. And frankly, I don't think it matters that much. I mean, it matters, of course, from the standpoint of if you want to... It's very interesting. But what matters to me is that there was a historical transition of this moment when Latin musicians were making these conscious attempts to cross over and to, and to create a kind of music that showed elements of uh, the entire American culture of the time, pop and rock and uh, soul music. And then, and, then, uh, there was this, and then this thing happened where everybody suddenly realized, or again, it's not that sudden, but gradually the trend became, no, we want to express our culture. Here we are in the USA, here we are in New, uh, New York, here we are in El Barrio, but we want to look at our roots and we're proud of our roots and we want the world to know how proud we are of our roots. And so you have Willie Colon digging into uh, the, you know, the, the bomba y plena rhythms and, um, and La Morga. A perfect example. I mean, Willie Colon is hugely instrumental in this transition. No pun intended, of course, on instrumental. <laughs> um, 
and you know, and the lyrics suddenly okay yeah you can have you know we've done these goofy songs about the subway and about you know smoking marijuana but now we're going to do songs about the plight of our people and um the the uh you know and the way people of latin descent are living around the world um and the social and class issues that are facing us so that's that's really what that generation wanted at that moment and Fania again was right on top of it and you know of course there's a give and take you create it and then the people want it more etc so Fania really participated in that transition as well as responded to it mm. and so where where I personally uh, my own humble opinion on this where I fall is that I, I believe it was Izzy perhaps someone else that mentioned this that Boogaloo was probably the best opportunity for Latin music to really cross over into the mainstream at that time. Uh, the, the salsa music, while it became very popular, I remember that Fania did a whole lot of touring outside the United States, but it never really got all that big in, in the United States. Now, they were playing in Yankee Stadium and other very large venues, but they even say at the time, like, they saw the money was abroad, right? So, from my perspective, we dance salsa. A lot of the people who are listen to the podcast dance salsa, and it's nice because it's a special niche of people who really can connect on salsa dancing. But a part of me says, "Gosh, this would have been just so much larger if that crossover did happen, and you would see become much more part of pop culture than it is today." Now, with things like Dancing with the Stars and others, it's making more of a comeback, and a lot of the people that come to the salsa classes they see Dancing with the Stars and like, well, I want to try that. I, mm. I wonder in some alternate bizarro dimension what it would look like if Boogaloo was not, uh, if it was killed or just in decline. And that crossover, Latin music kind of takes credit for it because my understanding is that Boogaloo still kind of lives today and I would love your feedback on this. It lives today, but it lives kind of in the, the shell of other music. I, I There was this great documentary on PBS where they, laid over the tracks of older boogaloos and other music into what became very pop pop music, just straight up white pop music. Right. Uh, and it has the same cha-cha with a backbeat. But, right. But you'd never know that unless you really knew about boogaloo. Right. Well, I, I have so much to say in response to this, Robert. I'm, I'm going to try to you know keep track of all the, uh, <laughs> the thoughts that you just provoked in me. One, yeah, cha-cha with a backbeat describes rock and roll in a lot of ways. And um, you know, and if you listen to uh, if you listen to something like Motown, you can you know where they actually have congas present to do the cha-cha sound, it becomes very apparent. But even you know, I'll be randomly listening to a radio. The the radio will come on, and there'll be like Bruce Springsteen or something that you'd never think about the relationship to Latin music. And yet it's right there. One, two, three, con, con, one, two, three. It's right there underneath the backbeat. So that's, that's just, you know, that is, that is, that is, um, it is the, the Latin music on, uh, the history of rock and pop music in America is tremendous. Um, but I, a couple, a couple things here. This is this is falling under the category of things that didn't make it into the article that I think you and your listeners might find interesting. One, boogaloo wasn't ever a genre the way that salsa was. In that there were very few boogaloo albums. People would put out boogaloo singles, and then they would put their boogaloo track on their LP, uh, perhaps as the first song on the first side and the first song on the second side. But then the rest of the album would be 
mambos and descargas and chachas and everything else. And you can actually, you know, you, most of these records from the 60s, you look at the back of the album and after each song, they list what kind of dance you should do for it. Um, so the, the, the categories are all right there. So very few, there were, there were very few Boogaloo records. There were just Boogaloo singles that the Latin musicians were putting out and adding to their records. Um, and one of the reasons this was the case is that Boogaloo was derided as overly simplistic when it came out by a lot of musicians and it's derided to this day. And it's interesting that some of the musicians who were calling it bubblegum music insultingly, I mean, I happen to love bubblegum music, so I don't think of that <laughs> as an insult, but some of the musicians who were calling, who were, who were basically saying, this is, you know, this is BS music. Um, this isn't real music. This isn't our music. Um, at the start of it, they eventually did it too because they they wanted they wanted to see what would happen if they put out a Boogaloo single. And so, you know, Tito Puente and Eddie Palmieri, they made some money putting out Boogaloos. Um, and then a lot of the musicians who deride it now are musicians who uh, had success doing Boogaloos at the time. Larry Harlow laughs if you ask him about Boogaloo. You know, he'll scoff at it. He's on record as saying it's, you know, it's if you're going to do Latin music, do real Latin music. Um, but he he had a number of uh, very popular Boogaloo songs um, to his credit in the late 1960s. So um, there's a way in which we, we can't, it's hard to imagine a Boogaloo genre really becoming very popular because it was always a little bit of a, you know, there was even when it was in its heyday, there was a little bit of a fly-by-night um, uh, character to it. It was always, you know, it was kind of a a thing meant to be a one-hit wonder. I guess. I mean, I, I would, I, and then you know, and even in the seventies, a lot of Latin musicians would still include boogaloos and things that sound like boogaloo on their salsa records. But then the question becomes, well, if it's not during the Boogaloo era anymore, should we still be calling it that? If, you know, you have a Charlie Palmieri album that's clearly a salsa record, but has one song on it that sounds a lot more like Boogaloo, um, should we, even, you know, like, how do we categorize that? That's a, that's, that's a question. You, you know, I, I, I just naturally vibe towards different metaphors. And what I'm thinking when you mention that about having one single that is Boogaloo and the rest is Salsa, it actually reminds me of Eminem. And Eminem, he, he was famous for having one or two very poppy, very catchy tracks. And the rest was really dark, really intense, very uh, emotional lyrics and, and interesting beats, but not what you would call mainstream. So he would use that one or two, you know, my name is or whatever those are to promote the album. And then they'd explore the rest of the album as that teaser. And I feel that Boogaloo also has a similar type of traction where it can reach the masses and perhaps hopefully from reaching those masses with the one or two tracks that are meant to, then they would explore hopefully the rest of those tracks. And I don't know if that's what they meant for it, but it certainly reminds me of other artists that, that do it that way where they have very different styles within the same album. I think that's, that's really astute. And I'm sure whatever the intention was, I'm sure for many people, uh, the, many people, many Latin music neophytes, Boogaloo was their introduction. And people, I'm sure, bought these records to hear 
I like it like that, but then they were they became just as uh, just as just as excited by tracks two through five, yeah. um, that sort of thing. You know, it's um, um, it's I think Boogaloo did Boogaloo helped salsa come about by providing uh, helping create the infrastructure of this industry of Latin music that you know it that was it, it was had been in a different situation ten years earlier. Mm. Yeah, it's and it's really interesting looking at the long view of this because Boogaloo was very inclusive, as you mentioned in the article, where it brought all of these different people of different ethnicities together, whereas salsa was meant as our Latin thing and it was meant for our people. And now what you're seeing in the Latin dance community is that our people are of all different ethnicities that listen to this music that was meant for the Puerto Ricans or the New Ricans, right? And it's very interesting how that has come full circle in today's salsa dancing and, and Latin dancing community, where it's, I mean, you have, you have everybody, some of the best dancers in the world, people that are known to be the best dancers are not of Latin descent. So you have these really mixed cultures that are listening to this music that was meant for our people. And what I also find interesting is Bachata specifically is starting to make this transition that I feel Boogaloo may have had the potential to do back in the day where bachata is now becoming very, very mainstream. And it's interesting. It's nothing like salsa mainstream. This is where you're seeing uh, bachata singers on PBS, on, um, on was it Sesame Street? I saw one of the oh. uh, Romeo Santos was on Sesame Street. Uh, you're talking about mass appeal and people in their cars driving by listening to bachata, uh, which I never have seen with salsa. So it is making this transition into pop music that, I feel maybe Boogaloo may have had the potential to, but Southside just haven't seen that that transition. I don't know if, if your analysis goes up to more present-day stuff like Bachata, but that's what I'm seeing with current Latin Latin music. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I, I might have a skewed view of things. I'm in New York. You're in Florida, right? So both <laughs> of us, you know, neither neither of us are living... Well, there's, as, as we know, um, the... Um, Latino population has is is no longer as concentrated in the United States. The Latino population used to, in the United States used to be much more heavily concentrated on a few specific areas, and now it's much more widespread, as we know. And that's you know, and that's that's um, I think a, a fantastic thing for our country. Um, so, but I still don't know. You know, I I live in New York City, which has is so dominated by the Latino presence that. I, I can never really assess whether what I'm experiencing <laughs> is what's going on in other parts of the country or the sure, world. The, I've been the, I've been hearing pachata coming out of car stereos for you know 15 years now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, a, it's the and echo I, chamber. It's the New York City echo chamber. But I'll tell you, it's not just not just there. It's a lot of other cities. I'm I'm seeing it. So, hey, so Jonathan, I want to be mindful of your time here. Uh, really appreciate this. This is. By far, I mean, not by far, but this is my favorite interview that I've ever done. Uh, just hearing wow. this history, and this is something that not enough salsa dancers are aware of. That That's probably the number one thing is the history of where this music comes from. We just tend to dance to it. There are some that do really follow this stuff, but I hope that all the listeners really get a lot out of this and read the article. Are there any additional resources that you publish related to Latin dancing or anywhere else that... Uh, that viewers should be aware of as a resource related to this topic? Uh, really, the best writing on Boogaloo is by Juan Flores, who is a historian at, uh, I believe, at NYU. Uh, he has the essay on, 
from Boogaloo, which is called Cha Cha with a Backbeat, which is in, it's on, it's online, it's available online, but it's also in his book, which is called From Bomba to Hip Hop. Um, I, I, I really love a collection called Situating Salsa, edited by the, the late Lisa Waxer, who was a fantastic ethnomusicographer of, um, of, uh, and writer about Latin culture and Latin music, um, much, much of her writings about Colombia. But anyway, that book, Situating Salsa, is really great. I, there's, I, really, the, one of the best resources is on uh, the website, Descarga.com. They do a lot of interviews, and they're all really great. And they have interviews with a lot of the most important salsa figures on there. Perfect. Great. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking some time here and speaking with me today. And uh, I appreciate your work. I'm sure the whole Latin dancing community really does appreciate your work with bringing issues like this to light. And, and hope you do more of them. If you do, send, send them our way. Okay, Robert, will do. Thank you very much. And um, best, best wishes to your listeners.
Brooklyn.